While some teachers, pastors, and politicians lack the conviction to talk about abortion, others simply lack the skills to do so effectively. Today, we talk to Daniel Gilman, the founder and executive director of the Center for Public Speaking, to talk strategies for maximizing the impact of your pro-life presentations. And Cam gets a coaching session on the episode as well. So stay tuned. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pro-Life Guys podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Peter. I'm the host of the show, and with me is Cam. Cam, the other day we had a comment on our Instagram page where someone said, um, I still don't know who is who. So that person must be listening to us on the on the podcast catchers. Um, and I just liked it and and uh, and didn't uh, answer their question so that they could linger in it a little longer. But if you're listening, I'm Peter, and uh, and you can see who I am on YouTube if you check out our YouTube channel. Cam, how are you, sir? I am doing well. Peter is the one with the flowing brown locks and and um, dazzling beard. I'm the guy that you, you get the shine off the gray hair coming off the sides and all the pictures that get posted and whatnot. The red beard um, that our cartoonist was far too generous in keeping more red in my hair um, than the gray that now pervades it. And so um, thank you for, for tuning in on our various um, podcast catchers. Those of you who are on YouTube, that's awesome. Definitely appreciate the likes and the views there. Um, if any of you haven't checked out our YouTube content, we would super appreciate it if you would. The reason for that, so I, um, both Peter and I get invited to come on to podcasts pretty often um, to do interviews and whatnot. And one of the best gauges for the the size and scope of a channel, of, of a program, is how big is their YouTube following. Right, because it's really difficult. Peter, you and I have a little bit of of backdoor way to find out how big a podcast is through a few different kind of charts and whatnot. Um, but for the general public and for most new podcasters, um, the only way to gauge the the size, the value in many ways of a podcast is by the YouTube audience. And so, if you haven't checked out our YouTube, even if you're not a huge YouTube person. We would super appreciate you smashing that subscribe button. And even if you're watching our videos um, at night on silent um, and just driving up the algorithm so that um, other pro-lifers out there are like, oh, these guys must be um, legit, even though only a small portion of their audience is on YouTube. Um, do us a favor, hit subscribe on YouTube and get us some views on there as well. And also on your favorite podcast catcher, if you could download as well, even if it's a download and then you delete it afterwards. That's what most of the tracking for um, podcasts is on. That's how the algorithms work based on how many downloads you get. And so if you could um, subscribe and download on your favorite podcast catcher, that would help us out tremendously and get podcast content into the earbuds of more and more people. But that's not why you came today. Probably not. Hopefully not. You didn't come to just hear me ramble about how to help us grow our show. Peter, you got another note on that before we dive on into the actual program. What do you got? I do. Yeah. So what you're saying is not we just want to get big for big sake, but um, all these likes and all these comments and the subscriptions and all of that helps the uh, helps more people find the content in the first place when they do various searches. Um, and that means more people are going to hear the content. And the next thing as well on YouTube, I'd love to get to a thousand subscribers. We're not even close. We're like a third of the way. But when you get to a thousand subscribers on YouTube, there are like various other perks that you can do on the channel that you can't do when you don't have a thousand. So 
Um, anyway, but you're right, Cam. We are not here to talk about YouTube, and uh, I don't even I don't even like YouTube sort of as a company, but uh, we do use them, and and that's another discussion. We're going to talk about Cam. So we we often have conversations about how people can talk to others about abortion on the streets, peer to peer. Um, you know, colleague to colleague, student to student, as it were, the more one-on-one conversations with people. But we don't often talk about how we can talk to people about abortion in presentations, in front of churches, in front of youth groups, in front of uh, audiences of various sizes. Because, well, maybe not because, but I think it's important to note, and, and we'll talk about that in a moment as well, is those are two very, very different things. And so what we want to do today is talk about how we can maximize the impact of our pro-life presentations. Often when I've had experience with this, Cam, you have as well. I know many of our friends have as well. When we get experience in pro-life apologetics, people often ask us to speak for them because we're good on the streets. We're probably going to be good on uh, in, in the church as well. And while we have no doubt that you will just smash it and do an amazing job in the church, what we want to do is provide you with strategies and tactics that will help you have a better conversation uh, and presentation. So to do that, we have invited on Daniel Gilman. Daniel came on the program, boy, oh boy, I think it was a year and a half ago now. Uh, he did our very first Christmas reflection in the year of 2020. That was a fantastic episode. You can go check it out on our website. So he's a friend of the program. Uh, he um, he might be listening to this, but he also, um, I think most, so he's recommended the most guests to come on the program. So uh, guests like Lois McClatchy, guests like Arnold Viersen, um, uh, Callum uh, Miller, and others uh, were recommendations from Daniel. So Daniel, thank you so much for that. He's an advisor to the Canadian Members of Parliament on Human Rights. He's a victim's advocate with the Whitestone Clinic, and he's also the founder, like I said off the top, of the Centre for Public Speaking. He's an ordained minister with the Anglican Network in Canada, and has been an advocate for preborn children and countless others on the margins of society. And so we're super excited to have him on again today. He's, his big initiative right now is a Center for Public Speaking, training people how to effectively communicate. He has um, coaches all over the world. He trains people all over the world. He has webinars as well. We were going to ask him at the end of the show about some of the, the webinars that he has coming up and, uh, and just what he does with the program. But before we get there, we're going to talk about how we can have the best presentations on the topic of abortion. This is our conversation with Daniel Gilman. Daniel, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us again on the podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, man. So since the last time we had you on, which I believe was December of 2020, um, you've started this new uh, venture. We talked about it in the introduction a little bit, and it's relevant to the topic that we are going to be touching on today. So could you briefly share with us a little bit about the Center for Public Speaking? Absolutely. It was right in the month of December, around when I was on your show, December 2020, that I received a phone call from a politician. She is 70 years old. And she said, Daniel, I have been a politician, a professional executive in business for, for years now. I've done both these things. And yet I have this fresh sense of conviction that I haven't been using the platform I have and the voice God's given me to actually make a difference. And I need coaching to be able to make a more beautiful and meaningful difference in the world. Can you coach me? And I paused for a moment because I was working full-time as a speaker myself, not as a coach, but I made a quick assessment whether or not I thought I could help her. Uh, I had been working previously a few years before that at Parliament Hill where I was coaching 
young political staff and some members of parliament in the art of public speaking. And so I thought, you know, I think I could probably help this individual. And then that very quickly turned into more clients until that became now the Center for Public Speaking. There are 12 coaches on our team around the world, and we've coached more than 50 people in more than 20 countries. That is super cool, Daniel. I'm so glad that we can have you on the program to dive into some of the art of public speaking. I love the way that you frame that. And obviously, as part of this show, as you're very familiar, we're often talking about how conversation skills for street corners and on doorsteps and helping pro-lifers form better arguments and all that kind of thing. And I think that there is a a prevailing notion out there among some people that if you're good at talking about abortion on a street corner, you would be just as good speaking about it to your church, to your, your Bible study, your young adults group, your school, whatever it may be. Let's talk about the difference between public speaking and having those kind of peer-to-peer conversations. What goes through your mind when you compare contrast those kinds of interactions and opportunities? Yeah, there are so many uh, overlapping uh, qualities that make for an excellent speech and a really meaningful conversation on abortion or on any topic. And that includes the ability to weave in stories, uh, to be show an interest in the people that you're speaking to, a, a variety of things you might get to tackle later on in the show, how to do that even better. But there's also some um, opposite strengths that one should lean into for the two. Uh, for example, if you're standing on a stage, it's really important. If you're speaking as the speaker at an event, the audience wants to know that you have put serious time into preparing to give them something. And so you want to show how you're, you're prepared and, and really value them by saying something like, uh, in today's talk, we're going to be looking at seven pieces of a powerful speech, or we're going to be looking at uh, five tips on how we can all make a better difference against abortion, something like that. Uh, you want to really um, show the, the audience how you value them by how prepared you are. By contrast, if you treat someone you're speaking to on a street corner as if they're your audience, uh, you're going to be shutting down the conversation really fast. If they feel like you're speaking at them and you say they, you ask them, what do you think of these photos like people might do on the streets with CCBR? And the person gives you uh, their thought. And then you say, well, here's my six reasons why you're wrong. Uh, you're going to lose them real quick. So um, that is in general a difference that when you're on a stage, you want to really uh, prepare for your audience and deliver to an audience. And when you're chatting with someone one on one, you want to make sure they feel like this is an organic conversation. Uh, it also though plays into much more smaller micro but important features of communication. So when I'm on a stage, I'm going to use my hands in a way like this. Uh, there's a, a bunch of um, uh, strong hands, confident hands, but welcoming and warming um, hands like this. And I'm, I'm speaking to them. I'll speak to them. I, I might say, I'm, I'm so passionate about this and this type of thing where I'm engaging my hands like this. If I was to do some of this when I'm speaking with someone on the street, it's going to look too much as if I'm speaking to an audience. Um, rather, uh, we're again on a stage, I might have make sure that my voice is resonant and deep and meaningful. When I'm chatting with someone, I want to make them... I'm going to have a conversation. I want them to feel uh, so, so much more in a position of them being um, comfortable that like, I'm going to try to make myself a little bit smaller. Uh, actually, when I am, I have some very intense photos with CCBR and I'm saying, what do you think of our photos? What do you think of about abortion? I know that the, it's so intense already and so intimidating to them that 
the more I come across, I was like, what do you think of these photos? It's going to be uh, just add to the intimidation factor and shut down the conversation. Whereas if I actually raise my voice a little bit, not raise, I'm um, change the pitch of my voice, make it a little higher and bring in my eyebrows a little bit like this, bring them up. Uh, those are things that make me come across as a little more vulnerable. So these are things I've done when I volunteer with CCBR. I'll say, hey, what do you think of her photos? Uh, hey, what are your thoughts on abortion? And those that more smaller and more vulnerable body language on my end lets the person I'm speaking with on the street corner feel uh, more comfortable and ready to share with me their thoughts. Gotcha. That makes a tremendous amount of sense, Daniel. That That's fantastic. Thank you very much for that. And and so bearing that in mind then, and, and we're going to be moving towards this idea of um, how to effectively deliver a, a quality content. But before we get there, you talked a little bit about the preparation that goes into preparing for public speaking. And and I, I don't want to get down in the weeds too, too much with regards to how to best prepare for a presentation. However, I did want to just kind of ask, generally speaking, in your mind, what is the value, you, you alluded to it already, the value of preparing for the presentation, the conscious subconscious notes that go into the audience's acceptance of the information conveyed, what, what goes into mind when it comes to preparing that talk before you even get up on stage? Mm -hmm. um, I asked one of my favorite speakers a similar question. I said, give me one tip. His name's Daniel Ringel. We were colleagues at RZIM. I said, give me one tip on how to be a good public speaker. And he said, to be a good public speaker, you need to be a great listener. And, and he chose his words precisely. He's saying that you're going to be as, uh, you need to be an even better listener than you are a speaker. To be a good speaker, you need to be a great listener. And so it's something I've really learned over the years in my public speaking ministry to tailor my preparation and delivery of every talk to who's in front of me. Um, you want to think through what is your audience's fears and longings? What is the message that they specifically they need to hear? What are the shared stories and even the vocabulary that this audience is going to be ignited by? Uh, there is a professor preaching on the West Coast in Vancouver who he actually goes, um, he goes to the area of the, the church that he's going to be speaking in, preaching in, before he is... Uh, before he's the guest preacher there. He's often a guest at different churches. And he will go into a Starbucks or a coffee shop of his choice. And he'll pretend to be journaling, but he's actually just listening. Maybe just doodling. He's just there listening to the conversations around him. And he actually pays attention to the, the vocabulary being used by the people in that coffee shop because it is often quite similar to the, the communication style of the people he'll be speaking to. And he changes every single talk he gives to be unique to the, the vocabulary and the context of that audience. Um, and so I try to do the same thing. Wow, that's uh, that's impressive. I've never actually heard that before. Usually someone just strolls into town and gets up on the stage uh, thinking, and this is what it seems like, thinking that they've got uh, the perfect thing for the audience. But to actually get down and to get the vernacular and um, really understand where the people are coming from, I think that's... That's huge. So can let's I, talk about Peter, delivery. Sorry to, sorry to interrupt, Peter. Just um, can I give you an example of how I did this wrong? Please. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I was at UBC again with RZAM and I was giving a talk at to students. Uh, there was a lot of students who were not from a faith background at all. And I was uh, sharing about uh, God's beautiful heart for the broken and our call to be involved in making a difference for children. And so one of the kind of the crescendo of the talk, I said, you were made to make a difference. 
you were made to make a difference. And in the university context, I saw these students leaning forward. Some of their eyes seemed to be shining. And I got immense, immensely encouraging feedback from those who were there. Well, about the next week, I was in rural Ontario at this church where I gave the exact same talk. And I, I, I just didn't, it didn't feel like it was resonating. To me, it didn't feel like it was resonating with those who were in the audience, in the congregation. And afterward, as I was chatting with people, my assessment is that the demographic at the church were mostly moms of pretty big homeschool families who are working so hard to bring their kids to all their different events. This is pre-COVID, so kids had lives back in those days. And so they're taking them to piano lessons and ballet lessons and to all sorts of engagements. These, these, these mothers I'm speaking to are so tired. So here I am just crescendoing with, you were made to make a difference. And what they're hearing is something else on my to-do list. Ah, like so stressful. Whereas I actually could have given, and I have since then, given virtually the same talk. But instead of it leading to the, the you were made to make a difference, I, I'm able to be um, sharing like your, your longing for the well-being of your children is something that God shares. Like that reflects God's heart. And he cares even more about your children than you do. And without the, the rest of the talk, it's hard to see how that's actually is kind of almost the same moment in the talk, but it really was. And when I was able to give that talk to a similar audience as in this rural church, to a similar demographic of moms, it seemed to resonate so much more. So think through, like, yeah, what are the fears and the longings of your audience? What are the shared stories and vocabulary that you can be giving a very similar message to that specific audience? Yeah, that's good. Thank you for sharing, sir. Um, so let's, let's talk about delivery. I mean, you provided some really helpful tips so far, Daniel, in terms of how we can deliver good presentations, um, and all of that. I know, uh, I know from experience and maybe you can, I don't know about you, Daniel, um, but you could have like a well-prepared presentation. You put the time into it, you put the research into it, and then you stand up, your hands are clammy, you're sweating. Um, your mind all of a sudden goes foggy, foggy and you sort of bumble your way through a presentation that, uh, you thought was amazing about an hour ago. And then when you're delivering it, you just wish you never stood up there in the first place. Um, and so this is where public speaking training comes in. And so I'm going to ask you sort of a, a broad question and we can hone in on, on various details and points, um, depending on where you take this and, and how you take it. But overall, very broadly, how do people, uh, deliver better presentations um, or sermons or workshops or whatever it might be? How do we, how do we think about the, you know, making our delivery just on point? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, first, if you have, and some of your listeners have read books on public speaking, or if they take courses on public speaking, the majority of those books, and I have a bunch of them here, um, they zero in, they're almost obsessively on the belief that the secret ingredient of an excellent speech, a speech that makes a difference, is confidence. So, so many books on public speaking are talking about how to make you a more confident speaker. And that's really stressful to a lot of us, because if you're anything like me and you do get real nervous before a big event, then you're thinking, I'm not confident, I need to be confident, how do I get more confident? And then these courses try to get your money on boosting your confidence. But I actually think that these secular authors and coaches have heard something real, and then they've misnamed it. They just don't have a grid for what I think we as people of faith, those of who are listening who have faith, might have the vocabulary for. It's not confidence that makes a speech amazing. It's actually conviction. And think about it. We've all heard speeches or testimonies of people 
who are violating so many of the rules of excellent public speaking. And yet, everyone in the room is leaning forward and hanging on their every word. We've also all heard speakers who have immense amounts of confidence. A lot of them run for office because they think they're the answer to all of our problems. And yet, as they're speaking, we are tuning them out. They're, they are, we're, not, we're not interested in opening up our hearts to hear what they have to say. So confidence will make you enjoy public speaking more. And I'd love to see my clients grow in their confidence. But it's conviction that actually makes the audience take away more. It's going to open up their hearts to hear what you have to say. And so that's the first tip uh, is uh, if, you're, if your palms are sweaty, if your voice is shaky, don't worry. There's actually something very endearing and um, compelling to the audience when they're seeing someone who is nervous, but despite the nerves, they're sharing their message anyways. So if you are someone who struggles with confidence, uh, it's okay. You're still going to do amazing. So that's the first, confidence versus conviction. The second is you need to know your why. And this comes from Simon Sinek. He has one of the most listened to TED Talks of all time, an incredible communicator. And in his TED Talk, he draws three concentric circles. On the outer circle, there's what, then how, and then in the center, why. And he shows how most of us, when we go to answer a question or prepare a speech, we think through the what first, and we tell the what, and then the how, and maybe we get to the why at the end. It's one of the reasons that there's a lot of speeches where we're listening, kind of bored and disengaged, and then toward the very end as an audience, we kind of wake up and engage. It's because they finally got to the why. It's the why that inspires. It's the why that connects. And this is especially important on the subject of abortion, because if we're speaking in an environment like a university campus, we're on the street, where it's more controversial than perhaps in a church, though some churches it is, um, the why is tends to be where we actually have common ground. And so it's the what and the how where we lose people, perhaps. So when you start with the common ground, you start with what inspires the why, you're then able to bring them to the what and the how. And so I try to have every one of my clients, and by try, I mean I insist with every one of my clients for them to identify the why of their speech, and then to privilege that to the beginning. And here's an example. One of my clients is a professor at a university in physiology, and he was struggling with being fairly boring. And we, as anyone who's gone to university or college, we've had very boring profs, and he was one of them. But he knew he could become a, a prof that students looked forward to his lessons. So the most helpful session we had together in his coaching was when we went over uh, inverting the circle to start with why. And I said, Professor, what is, tell me what the, you're teaching the students on Tuesday. And he explained it to me in some pretty technical terms. I said, but why are you teaching that? What's at stake? What happens if these med students don't know the information you're teaching them? He said, well, they won't be able to resuscitate people's hearts when their hearts stop beating. I'm like, what? Okay, so, so if they do know this information, they will be able to resuscitate people's hearts, to save people's lives. Yes. So I said, Professor, are you telling me that life and death hangs in the balance of the information you're teaching in this upcoming lecture? And he said, that wouldn't be an exaggeration. Okay, well then start your lecture by saying, class, life and death hangs in the balance of you knowing this information. You are going to be medical professionals and you need to know how to resuscitate people's hearts. To, and if you don't pay attention, if you don't digest this information, then people will unnecessarily die on your watch. Now, he can go into all the what, and it can be a long, tedious lecture. But by framing it with a why, he has captured their attention and given them a reason to hear what he has to say. Now, to those who are listening to this, the Prolet Guys podcast, the message that we've been entrusted with on abortion, there's even more at stake. Because we're not talking about just uh, 
uh, a, a life and death issue that society all agrees on. We're talking about the most vulnerable, the most vulnerable Canadians who are systematically being uh, torn apart by abortion. Our message is to try to save their lives. That's a very compelling why. Yeah, and and I think that that's so vital, especially anchoring the entire um, kind of vision for your sermon, for your presentation, for your workshop with clarity around what what is the, an audience going to get out of this? What what why should they listen to you? Why did they bother showing up on a Sunday morning or on a a Friday evening or whatever kind of thing? Why are they there? What can this equip them with? Because I. I, one thing that I keep in mind, I, I've, I could definitely um, use a lot of public speaking tips, and I, I'm sure that you and I will be in touch after this, but in the hundreds of presentations that I've given, the sacrifice of people's time that they are investing, particularly into something like this, that isn't a course component, right? You, you think about that med class, and some people are going to go there simply because they have to, mm-hmm. right? To be able to graduate, to be able to get their certificates and degrees and whatever, they have to be there whether they want to or not. But the reality is within the pro-life sphere, the majority of our audiences don't have to be there. They don't have to come to our workshops. They don't have to come to our presentations. They're coming because they want to. Mm. And when we're thinking about keeping them engaged throughout, well, there's so much that we want to say. There's so much that we want to say in our pro-life presentation. I remember the first um, apologetics workshop I gave after my internship in 2012 was like four and a half hours long. Um, these people from 40 Days for Life in Victoria came out. It was advertised as a two and a quarter hour workshop. It ended up being a four and a half hour workshop. I just had so much that I wanted to say. And people could could see my conviction, but I had no way to engage my audience mm-hmm. in a meaningful interaction. And, and you alluded to that earlier. And I'm curious the role that you see in engagement, whether rhetorical or whether open engagement with your audience when it comes to keeping them for the long haul. Mm-hmm. It, how do you get people to, to stay tuned for more than the first 5, 10, 15 minutes if you've got 45 minutes worth of content that you need to deliver? Where yeah. is the engagement of audience in this? Well, there's, there's a number of ways we can take that uh, of methods of engagement. But one fundamental one that every one of us needs to wrestle with is vocal dynamics, not being monotone. Uh, A monotone voice is the default voice for most of us, especially when we're stressed. And when we're giving a presentation, or especially if it's on a controversial subject, like abortion, it is, uh, we default to our safe place, which is uh, a monotone voice. Now, a monotone voice is white noise. And gentlemen, what do people use white noise machines for? Exactly. The default voice, yeah, uh, the default voice for most of us as public speakers is as a white noise machine. We're putting people to sleep by the the rhythm or lack thereof of our voice. And so the first uh, coaching session I do with any client is is increasing their vocal range and helping them learn how to get louder and softer, how to vary the speed of their voice and then change the duration of the words themselves. And just doing those three things, changes in volume, speed, and the duration of words, um, which includes incorporating pauses into what you say, um, is going to be way more engaging and interesting and um, hold your audience's attention for whether it's a 20-minute talk or even, like in your case, like four and a half hours. Daniel, um, you talked about uh, conviction versus, oh man, help me out here, sir. Confidence. 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 That's right. Um, 
the conviction versus confidence and the importance for us to have that conviction uh, when we're delivering that presentation. Um, but also confidence is important. I, I, I know I've listened to uh, like class presentations where students went up and uh, they may have had conviction. Um, actually, class presentations, you usually never have conviction <laughs> about what you're talking about because you're forced to talk about that. Yeah, but, that uh, but certainly didn't have... Sorry, Peter, that's exactly what I mean, though. If, if you had a class presentation and someone goes up there and they're not very confident, but there's that sense that they really care about the presentation. I've, I've had that where I'm, I'm in class and it's presentation after presentation, so boring. And then one person goes up, regardless of their confidence, and there's a sense in their voice and even in the their use of their hands, um, using your hands more shows that you're more passionate about it. When, when there's that sense of conviction that all of a sudden this isn't just an assignment, but they care about this and that right. we need to hear, we wake up and enjoy it more. Oh yeah, black and white difference. But I wonder, like, do you have a tip or two on how we can grow in confidence? Yeah, well, one of the ways that we grow in confidence is by having a better grid for what we're doing. And so I'm not here, I'm not here to try to sell people on coming to the Center for Public Speaking as clients. But honestly, taking time to grow in your grid for what is excellent public speaking is going to allow you to have the confidence that you are doing an excellent job. Um, another another mindset change is um, to understand that when we are presenting, when we're speaking, it's not about ourselves. It is about the audience. And so, again, with clients who have been very um, just being tripped up by their lack of confidence, and it, and it really is these um, success defeating mindsets that they have. I have them like write out their why, which is the gift that they're giving the audience. So. Yeah, this is a way that you can be involved in making a difference in the world. Or uh, if, if, if you learn this, you're going to be able to help um, make, yeah, stand for the most vulnerable victims in Canada. That, that, is, that is a gift that you're giving the audience. You see, like, if, if, if you have, say, your interns, uh, your summer interns with your incredible CCPR internship, um, maybe they have an exam. And so they're writing out answers to various questions about abortion. Well, the answers to their exam questions might be very similar content to what they'd be giving in a speech about abortion. But pay attention to the vocabulary. We take a test, we take an exam, but we give a speech. And that language has been very helpful for my own mindset to speaking. We take a test, but we give a speech, even though in both cases we're giving answers. When, when we go to give a speech and, and confident, the lack of confidence is tripping us up, it's because we're standing there as if... We're here to take something from the audience. If I'm if I'm really nervous, it's that if I'm really insecure, I am trying to look to the audience to take from them a sense of validation, a sense of affirmation that I am worth their time, that I am good at this, that I am whatever it might be. And so as soon as we're that mindset of taking in a speech instead of giving a speech, then we get tripped up. And so before a talk, if I'm especially if I'm getting into that kind of toxic mentality, which I do sometimes, I will write out. What is the, the gift I'm here to give the audience? And then also take time and pray. And just praying for them, one, makes a difference. But two, it orients my heart to be there to humbly serve them instead of, again, to more insecurely be looking to them to take something from them. Love it. 
Love it, Daniel. And and I, I definitely want to dive into that more in just a moment here. And I, I want to ask you as well in just a moment about body language. And and you, you mentioned already the use of hands, the eyes, the eyebrows, the whole shebang. I want to dive into that in just a moment. But one thing that I'm sure is kind of niggling in the backs of minds of a lot of people listening is the question of notes, notes and script and this idea that can I give a good presentation with notes and a script? Does having any kind of cue card, having any kind of notes automatically communicate to my audience that I don't know what I'm talking about? What are your thoughts, first of all, on having notes? And if I'm, I'm sure that we're probably in agreement that we want to get away from notes eventually, whether it's immediately or eventually, I don't know. But how do people get... Um, separated from the security blanket that notes sometimes provide. So what, yeah, what are your thoughts are, uh, what are your thoughts on having notes and then how do people get away from having notes, I suppose? Sure. Yeah. So it's really important for us to remember if we're going to try to move away from notes, why? And the only why is that it's better engagement. It's more conviction. That's, that'll be the why it, it, it engages, shows conviction. Um, we need to know that why, because if you're preparing for a talk and you're thinking of not using notes and you're working on that, but you realize that your lack of using notes is going to do one of two things, make you more robotic because you have memorized everything and you're now doing it as a recitation. The, the, being more robotic, doing it like a recitation you memorized is going to kill a sense of conviction and engagement even worse than if you use notes. So then use notes. Or maybe you're not going to be word for word memorized, but you'll do what I struggle with, which is being way too rambly, not being concise. And if you find that you're going to be way too rambly, then go back to using notes because it's going to be better. However, best practices, I really do think, is to not use notes. In fact, I'd rather, I, I, I work with clients to not even have an outline or cue cards or anything, but just go up there with nothing and give a concise but powerful speech. Now, how do you do that? Uh, that's, again, it takes more time than you have on this show. But one of, just a, an approach that I think will help people is this. Think about this. If you're giving a speech, you have spent time preparing. It's probably on an area that you yourself are quite passionate about and invested in. If you yourself need all this notes in order to remember what you're saying, how much more your audience, which is less immersed in your content. When we give speeches, we're not there to use up people's time. We're there to actually make a difference. And again, on the case of abortion, we're there to actually try to save lives. We're trying to speak up for the most muted and marginalized demographic in Canada. There's so much at stake. We need people to walk away changed. We need them to walk away and they need to remember the speech. They need to remember the content, not just right after the speech, but way later. Well, if you and I need notes to remember this stuff, what hope do they have to remember and to have it be echoing in them much after the talk? Now, the same pieces of a speech that will make it easier for you to not use notes are the same elements that will make it easier for your audience to remember without notes. What is that? Well, one is stories. It's so much easier. You might be having all the quotes and all these things in your talk, but then you get to a story and you just need one word to remind you of that story because you know your story. Stories are so memorable. Well, similar for your audience. They'll walk away remembering those stories. Um, similarly, when you're giving a speech, and one of the fun sessions we do is the difference between public speaking versus writing, you'll notice uh, that uh, excellent speaker authors um, have leaned into the differences between the two. And an example that will be dear to many on this show is Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. Contrast that speech with his famous similar message in his letter from a Birmingham jail. 
in the speech, he is using similar words and, 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 and that he's repeating and repeating and repeating because that repetition makes them stick in our minds as an audience just hearing his words. But when, someone, when, you, when someone's reading something, you don't need that same level of repetition because the fact that it's in print before you and you're reading it is just easier to remember anyway. And so uh, in, a, in a speech to make it more memorable for the audience and easier for you, you yourself to give without notes, um, have key points that are short and succinct. I have a dream. Um, or the, it's the why of why we should fight abortion, the what of how we're going to fight abortion, and the how of how we're going to fight abortion. That is very easy for someone to remember as their outline. It'll be easy for the audience to be able to walk away with. But I want to focus on stories for a minute with you guys. Can we do some, some coaching right now? Let's do it. Yeah, yeah, man, let's do it. So one of the, I think one of the, the if, if I was the one that talked about one element about public speaking, it wouldn't have been conviction or vocal dynamics. I would take a monotone story of, above anything else because stories are such a key part of public speaking. Uh, so I would love to have one of the two of you, and I haven't given them, I haven't given uh, Cam and Peter a, a warning of this, but I'd love for one of you to pick a story that will take about two to three minutes to share. And then I will uh, walk you through some ways, uh, some things you did well, and maybe some things to tweak as well. Cam, me or you? <laughs> I, I'll dive in. Um, any any parameters, uh, like an activism story, story from my personal life, anything? Yeah, if it could be a speech, or... if it could be a story that you would use in a speech about your work at CCBR, that would be fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, about two minutes is probably ideal. Gotcha. So many of you have probably heard this story before about a, a young woman that I spoke to in Calgary, Alberta, who had just finished her job as a construction worker. She, she was coming in, she had the hard hat on, she had boots, she had the whole shebang. And I asked her, what do you think about abortion? She looked at me, she looked at the sign that I was holding. And when she looked back up, she had tears in her eyes. And she said, you know what? When I was in university, I was sexually assaulted. And when I found out that I was pregnant, I didn't think I had any other option. So I've had an abortion. And in that moment, I had no idea what I was going to say back to her. And I was just like, Jesus, please help me reach this person. And we ended up talking for like 45 minutes through the people that had pushed her towards abortion, the fact that she had never been able to prosecute um, her, her assaulter because she had been drugged at a party. We talked through all of the people that were or weren't in her life. And by the end of the conversation, we were talking about how like, what could I have done if I was there with her in her life, a friend, a, a family member who wanted to help her keep that baby? What could I have done? And she ended up just kind of looking at me and saying, you know what? You could have just listened. But like, all I needed was for somebody to listen to me, to listen to what I actually needed rather than for them to push and pull and tug and, and all this kind of stuff for what they thought that I should do. I just wanted somebody to listen. And so when she walked away, not only had she come to regret her abortion and to recognize all abortions to be human rights violations, but she wanted to be able to share her story so that other people didn't choose abortion, even if they were in similar situations to her own. I don't know if that was two minutes, but... Amazing. No, that was story. perfect. Well, first of all, it's, it's a beautiful, real story. And second, Cam, both you and Peter are amazing storytellers. I actually... I love and I love listening to and learn so much from the CCBR staff when it comes to public speaking in general and storytelling specifically. Um, I'm going to try to rapidly go through what my team and I have uh, deconstructed as eight ingredients of an amazing story, of a compelling story. And this really does come from just organically, intentionally listening to our favorite storytellers, the people who, whether they are a public speaker or just that girl or guy and a set of friends 
But when they start telling a story, everyone's eyes just light up because we know it's going to be worth listening to. And the strength of these stories isn't so, something the content, the story, but just how they tell stories. And so I'm going to go through these eight ingredients that my team and I have uh, deconstructed. And then, Cam, I would love if you'd be taking notes um, somehow some oh, on oh, your I phone got, or computer. I got the notes. I got the notepad right Okay, here. take some notes as I speak. And then I'd love for you to retell the story in a few minutes when I'm done monologuing about these eight ingredients, okay? So the first is, and, and the, the first ingredient of an amazing story is a powerful opening. This is so important today more than any other epoch in history. Because in the past, if someone was speaking, the audience was most likely listening because they were intentionally present. But now people are consuming our stories through uh, scrolling on their phones. Maybe even you're at an event and the event itself is one people intentionally came to, but that event is filmed, it's clipped, it's online, and someone's scrolling. And so you have the first sentence to, for them to decide if they're gonna keep scrolling or gonna actually turn the sound on and listen to the rest of the story they probably reading it with just the captions on silent or anything like me. So first look for a great opening sentence. A, a good opening sentence tends to either be a meta sentence. So that's a sentence about the story. Here's an, it's not the story itself. Here's an example. Uh, here's the most embarrassing moment in all of my street activism with CCBR. Or uh, the most frustrating but clarifying moment in politics was here. So those meta sentences create interest, intrigue, audience wants to keep listening. Another way to start a story is to choose one of the most intriguing moments within the story. And a rookie mistake is to think you have to start chronologically at the beginning. Choose a moment that's going to draw your audience in and then back up right after that. So, Cam, that'd be a quick one to look for. Is there, a, is there an alternative opening sentence? Number two, your follow-up sentences should raise the stakes. And Cam did that really well by talking about the various people who were pushing and pulling on her and the fact that this woman actually wasn't talking theoretically about abortion, but that she had had one. Those features of the story were drawing us even more and more into the story. They were raising the stakes. They're drawing us in. Number three, have as much immersive, vivid, sensory words as you can. And this is really important. We call this show, don't tell. So if you're telling a story and maybe it's that your uh, dad angrily hung up the phone with you. I don't know why I chose that. But my dad angrily hang up the phone. Angrily is an abstract term. So that's telling us how he did it. We don't feel it as much. But if you show us why you felt it was anger, then you don't even need to waste any breath saying angrily. You just say, we're chatting and my dad uh, slammed the phone down. The desk shook. Well, that would show us that he had angrily hung up the phone. So use as many concrete details as you can. Along those lines, use names, because saying uh, someone's name such as Kelsey is a lot more um, concrete than saying this woman on the street. Now, you can use a fake name, and you can always clarify at the end of the talk that you've used fake names throughout, the, your, throughout your entire speech. But yeah, use a name, whether real or fake. Only use real names if you have permission of people. Um, that's number three. Again, these sensory details anything of sound sight feeling touch smell is what partly makes a story more entertaining engaging immersive we feel it with you it's awesome okay number four use distinct voices as much as you can uh, this is one i think that clients feel the most uh, they, uh, vulnerable doing and uh, often just choose not to uh, we're telling a story and again the more dynamic the more change in voice there is when we're speaking the more it's engaging well, then quotes of people are a free ticket to a, a different voice. 
Um, so use that. You make a uh, use a different voice. Um, of course, this is um, easiest to do if it's a comedic story, because there's something silly about changing voices. But even in a serious story, like you're talking about talking with a woman about an abortion, you can still raise your voice a little bit when you. Then she said, "Well, da 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 da," and then I said, "Da da 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 da." And when I when I tell stories, I quote myself. I'll either um, yeah, I'll change my voice a little bit when I quote myself, which is of course inaccurate because this is my voice. So this is how I would have said it in the story. But when I say, and then I asked her, well, tell me. Or when, then I asked her, so what do you think? But just by changing my voice a bit, it makes the story more interesting. It's a better, it's a best practice for storytelling. Um, okay, next is uh, interrupt yourself. C.S. Lewis does this magnificently. Um, an example from my own speeches will be um, telling a story about winter. And it's, this is from a speech on human trafficking. It's a very heavy and sad topic and speech. But I'm telling yet another story about winter in my speech. And so I say, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know why all my stories about winter. I guess I'm Canadian. And then they continue on with the story. By interrupting yourself, you're able to give the audience a moment of levity, which they need, especially if we're talking about something so heavy and serious as abortion or human trafficking. It also shows the audience that you're taking the subject seriously, but you're not taking yourself too seriously. It makes you more relatable. And again, it gives them a moment to kind of breathe as you dive back into the story. Uh, number six, this is the second most important point of any of these. There's eight, this is number six. And that is have as many surprises as possible. I had a, I had a client who was telling a story about how she met her husband. And that's how she started her story. Here's a story of how I met my husband. And then the next sentence was this opening of a, a hilarious story about the main kids. And he was so weird and awkward. And then she had a story about being teenagers and seeing the sky again. And so weird and awkward. And all of a sudden the story ends with her finding the immense value and and magnificence of this man, they fell in love and they're married. Well, it was a way better story when she starts off with something that leads us in the wrong direction, um, or at least doesn't give the ending away. And she says, I wanna tell you about one of the most awkward experiences that just made me so uncomfortable as a kid, and tell us this hilarious story. And then by the time she gets to, and I married him, now that's just way more rewarding. And again, that's, that's great for hilarious. It's also powerful for that, sometimes a gut punch that a story on a heavy topic needs. So see how many surprises you can throw into a story, little big. Okay, number seven. I think this is what separates excellent storytellers more than anything else from those stories that just don't resonate. This is what makes stories resonate. Number seven is think through what background your audience needs to know so that they feel what you felt when the story happened to you. So there's a story we can share another time. Um, but there's this, this story that has worked experience in a number of my talks, which I have permission to tell from my friend, Danielle, when she was, um, she was this little girl in a neighborhood I lived in. It was a broke neighborhood filled with crime and poverty. And, uh, I tell the story of how after five years of precious memories and moments with this kid, I saw her in a missing child poster. Now it's not the way I tell the story. Instead, I take time. It was, I tell the story to, to bring the audience into these precious moments with her. And then all of a sudden my last sentence mentions about seeing her in a missing child poster. We've all seen missing child posters, they're sad, but we tend to feel sympathy for that generic face that we don't really recognize. But the moment in the story where that generic face became the person I knew when I recognized her and the gut punch, well, if I, I could have thought, oh, that would be a really powerful opening line, capture people's attention for this very serious talk about um, looking for missing children and have the opening sentence be, um, I escaped from the frigid Canadian winter, all my stories have winter, I'm Canadian. So I escaped from the frigid Canadian winter into my basement apartment. And as I opened up my 
computer, I saw my friend Danielle and I'm missing a child poster. I might think that's a great opening because it's going to capture their attention, but that sentence won't have the weight it needs to have. And so this is what makes storytelling, empathetic storytelling, where you're thinking through what the audience needs so they feel what you felt when the story happened to you. And if you just think that way, then it's going to enrich just about any story. I should say as well, uh, later that same night, after a variety of, of intensity, we found Danielle. She's safe. She's thriving today. And again, she do have her permission to tell that story. Um, number eight is just know how your story ends. Most of us, if we are somewhat intentional about public speaking, know how a story begins. We have a good hook, but then we just know where the story is going. And therefore, we ramble and waste people's time and it trails off. Instead, know how your story ends. As part of that ending of your story, have it tie into your talk because it tends to be quite obvious to us who's so immersed in our subject, why we're telling the story, but it tends to be much less obvious to our audience as to why the story is in the speech. And we don't just want our audience to remember our great stories. We want them to actually um, remember the point of the talk. So when you link the two, all of a sudden, now the story is actually contributing, propelling your talk forward. That is a long monologue for myself, Cam, which would be ready to retell your story using at least a couple of those points. Um, I will give it a go. Um, and, and we can talk more about the rest of them. I'll, I'll see how many I can build in. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, no, I'm not every story will have all of them, but just, uh, yeah. Gotcha. See if you can use some. Gotcha. Cool. Well, I want to share with you about one of the most challenging, but also most beautiful, um, testimonies that I've ever been blessed to witness. And it happened on a bitter cold night in Calgary a couple years ago when a woman told me looking into my eyes with tears in her eyes that she had been sexually assaulted while in university and that she had had an abortion. Now, I don't know about you, but when I have conversations about abortion, I kind of fear those conversations. I'm a little bit overwhelmed by people who have personal experiences. And so in that moment, I didn't really know where I was going to go with the conversation, but I just prayed, Lord, help me reach this person. And so when I looked at her and I said, can you share what you went through with me? And she thought about it, and I saw that tear drip down, and she said, yeah. And she shared with me what had happened, that she had been drugged at a party while she was in university, and that she had been sexually assaulted while unconscious. When she woke up later and she found out that she was pregnant several weeks later, she was overwhelmed, and there were a tremendous number of people pushing and pulling her in different directions. And I could, I could just sense the tension in her mind as she recounted this, because as she told me later on that she had never actually told anybody about this um, encounter before. And so through the 45 minutes that I spoke with her, I became less and less concerned about what was going on around me, what my fellow volunteers were saying or doing. And I just focused in on her. And at the end of the conversation, I asked her, what could I have done if I was there? And she looked at me and she said, you could have listened like you've done today. And it hit me because what she had described to me was that she had so many people that wanted to push things or pull things from her or at her, but nobody wanting to listen to what she needed, what she knew that she needed. And she left that conversation saying that she not only regretted her abortion and thought that all abortions were human rights violations, but that she wanted to allow her story to be shared so that other people didn't make the decision that she had made, even in the circumstances that she was faced with. And that has helped shape me as a pro-life activist ever since then. 
and help guide me in the conversations that I'm having so that I can reach them on a peer-to-peer level of somebody who wants to help the person that I'm talking to, not just the baby that they might be carrying, not just a child that their wife or girlfriend might consider aborting sometime in the future, but they themselves right there in front of me, that I want to help them so that they can help the people around them. Oh. Cam, well done. Um, a couple yeah, things I, in there, maybe. The both times <laughs> you told the story was so good. Um, this time you clearly had an intentional beginning, uh, where you spoke about this beautiful conversation, um, that I think catches our attention even more. And then you brought us that, that number eight, tying it into why you would be giving the talk, um, makes it a story that is going to resonate with us. Cause now we have, uh, in this case, it kind of ending with that why is so powerful. Cool. Well, thank you for the coaching. I made those notes and. For those of you that have already heard the story, you'll probably hear it again presented in a slightly different way the next time I share it, whether through a podcast or a talk that I'm doing in your church. Um, look forward to better <laughs> storytelling. <laughs> awesome. Hey, I know that we'll probably have to be wrapping up pretty soon, but there's just another one little piece that I think still needs to be said before we can say goodbye. And that is that um, when, when any of us begin to work on our public speaking with more intentionality, it often raises a question, which is, am I learning to be less authentic? Uh, when we start to use more vocal dynamics, instead of just speaking whatever is our default voice, it feels, well, am I faking it? I'm learning ways to speak with more conviction. Am I, and to express more conviction, am I faking it? Is that inauthentic? Now, Peter, I'll ask you this, because Cam just went on a limb and shared a whole story. Peter, what is it called when we inconvenience ourselves for the welcome and blessing of someone else. Sacrifice. Yeah, it is. I'm looking for another word as well. Give me another word. What is that? We eat like a synonym of sacrifice? Um, <laughs> <laughs> typing it into Google right now. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, uh, I wouldn't offering? say like confirmation, like, like conf- conforming to their needs. I. There's a lot of great words that are all true. Giving up oneself. Yeah. Sacrifice, love. The word I'm looking for is hospitality. When we convince ourselves, when we make ourselves feel a little bit uncomfortable, that's okay. It was not a test. Um, The words you chose are enriching to my own understanding of this question. But the word that I would choose for this is hospitality. Um, That when we inconvenience yourself. So if if you were extremely stressed, tired, and just having an all-around bad day, you're feeling quite introverted. Sorry, some people are, are introverted when they're having a good day. For me, oh, if you're feeling just real introverted and all of a sudden someone drops by and you know that they are going through uh, just gut-wrenching tragedy. And so even though you're feeling very turned inward, you want to invite them in. So you bring them in to your kitchen table and you try to bring up some cookies and tea and stuff for them. You want them to feel blessed. Now, if you're thinking, I need to be my authentic self, then authentically, you're going to bring out those cookies like, and then take out the teapot and be like, mm-hmm, have some. Like that's that's you being authentically how you feel. But that is uh, that's not uh, that's not like humble, authentic. That, that's just you're you're not being hospitable. To be hospitable means that even though inside you're feeling like fuming maybe because of a bunch of other things going wrong, you choose to be present. You choose to say, I'm so glad you're here, and I'm so sorry going through some tough stuff. And just you're centered on them, and you're choosing the right voice and face. That's going to make them feel welcomed and blessed. Now, it is every single person that we're speaking to, probably in conversations, certainly in an audience, is stressed, 
busy, exhausted. It's hard for us as audience members to listen to the person speaking. I battle myself almost every time I'm hearing anyone speak or recording of myself. It's not easy. And so when we have that speaker who just makes it easy for us to enter in, when through their vocal dynamics, they capture our attention, hold our attention, they're telling us stories that just let us be able to enter in and listen so easily. Like that is a, an act of hospitality. And so every speech we give, and I think every conversation we have should be an act of generous hospitality. I love that. I love that. And, and especially connecting it with the gift component, right? Because I, I genuinely believe that, and we've heard that even within CCPR of like, oh, it, it feels so fake to go up there. But if it's a matter of if, if you're just doing what you always do because it's comfortable for you versus what is necessary for the benefit, for the gifting and blessing of others, I think that's a beautiful way of framing how do we develop our delivery so that it is the best gift that we can possibly give. Absolutely. So that the gift, the gift that we're giving optimizes what they are receiving. Um, I, I love that. I love yeah, that. and again, just to stay here for a moment, like um, I, I often get, and it's beautiful, but it's from my clients who are priests and pastors who tend to be the most concerned about, are, are you making me manipulative and inauthentic? And I say, well, listen, there's, there's, there's um, a theological soundness to our vocal dynamics that we would never tolerate in our own preaching, for those of us who preach, someone saying, well, God is kind of okay, and he's, he's, moder- he's, he's interesting, but sort of, and um, he's kind of worth a sum of our life. No, like we would never say that. Instead, we would say, whether probably in a monotone voice, but like, God is interesting. He is amazing. He's the movie we can uh, never go beyond scra- um, just scratching the surface of all that there is to know about God. He fills us with awe and wonder, and he's worth all that we are. For example, like that's what our words might be saying if we're a priest or a, or a pastor. Um, but so much of what we communicate is through our voice, our face. Our, and so if we're saying theologically uh, or philosophically true words, but we're in a monotone voice, we're communicating the sort of kind of eh, of, of the, the sentences of um, God is wonderful. He's amazing. He's worth all that we are. And the same is true, honestly, about the topic of abortion. That if we're saying we'd never let our, our, we wouldn't let ourselves stand in front of an audience and say preborn babies are kind of worth some of our time, and we should re- use our voices like only so much as it doesn't inconvenience ourselves. Uh, we should use our voices and give our money to the cause of life. No, like we would say, our words would be saying, our content would be saying that we should be um, sacrificing to the hearts. That even if we're already giving to uh, CCBR, let's look at see if we can give even more to see if we can help CCBR make a more beautiful, life-saving impact. And so if we would say that in our speech, then let's also be communicating that with our voice. Yeah, so I think the same could be said, Daniel, um, to what you referenced earlier, which is our body language, the way we're using our hands, the way we're moving around. Um, I want to bring this up because Cam uh, mentioned it a little bit earlier. Then we'll wrap up um, in just a moment because... um, yeah, I, there's like so much to talk about and people can reach out to you at the Center for Public Speaking. Now, I've seen, I don't know if there's like a, a sort of theory or principles behind this, but I've seen speakers stand up behind their podium and do like a fantastic job without moving their sort of their legs at all, without walking the stage. And I've seen people stand behind the podium and do a terrible job uh, without walking the stage. But I've also seen the reverse. People like back and forth on the stage, very, very engaging, and other people back and forth on the stage, and it looks like a nervous tick. And so I'm wondering, like, how do we think about the way we use our hands, the way we navigate our way through the stage? 
um, or the, you know, the front of the church or whatever it might be. How can we think about um, our movement and our body in front of an audience? Mm -hmm. Well, first, again, one of the problems with a lot of books and courses on public speaking is that we tend to get people want rules from us. And so uh, write a book, have a course with as many rules as possible, and you sound authoritative and awesome. Uh, so it's easy for me to say, okay, here's the rule, let's go. Um, but uh, in a desire to be authentic about what makes for excellent public speaking, um, think through a, a number of who are your favorite public speakers are, who capture attention, who change your life through their words. Uh, they tend to be quite different from each other. The speed at which they talk or their use of motion, which you said, some stand behind a pulpit, some move the stage. So I think that the problem with rules is that so much of what makes for excellent speaking is the uniqueness of that voice, that the person leaning into what makes them unique. It's really important then that we only accept coaching or even our own effort on this um, that is recognizing that factor. Um, now, with that said, I, I do think there's some general principles. From what I can tell, the um, movement... Uh, lights up neurons in the brain. So again, that the um, if if you were if you were looking at a screensaver, some of us on this uh, podcast are old enough to remember screensavers. And like, if the screensaver was static, you'd probably it'd hold your attention for a moment. When you have that little thing that moves and changes color, like, and has get, to go to the corner. Oh, you like watch it until it hits the corner. Oh. <laughs> and then when you see it, yeah. So when you, like it can really hold your attention because it engages. And if it was static for a while, you would start probably to fall asleep if that's all you had to do is look at the screensaver. I take the same approach to my body language that if I'm there rigid, movement, monotone in voice, monotone in face and my, and my arms, that people are more likely to begin to tune out. But when there's movement, it shows a greater sense of passion when you involve your hands the more that there's movement in your face, your voice, your hands, and even uh, your positioning uh, is awesome. So I, I, that's my own, for myself, I try to have a lot of movement. And here's a freebie for people who are now doing a lot of Zoom events or maybe listeners have their own podcasts. Um, again, if, you, if you're very stilted, that might show a lack of interest. And so sometimes you are moving, but right now I'm moving my hands like this below the screen, but you can't really see. So a lot of us, when it comes to Zoom, it's as if we're giving this speech or this conversation like this. So I intentionally bring my hands up artificially. I would never be standing in a speech like giving up with my hands up near my shoulders. I would look very silly. But it actually helps show a sense of passion when I have my hands artificially in the screen so that there is a sense of movement. Um, there's a really good, good, good TED Talk, which will offend a bunch of listeners because uh, anyone who, uh, yeah, he gets a ton into um, um, my, uh, evolution and stuff and a lot of listeners are going to be like, turned off by that, but it's, I think, completely irrelevant to his talk. It's a, just an 18-minute talk. If you listen to YouTube on two-speed, which is how I do, it will only be nine minutes for you. So it's a real quick, um, it's hardly time investment, but he deals with what excellent hands are, what excellent eyes and faces when you're speaking, and you can find it. His name is Mark Bowden, and it's uh, if you just type in, um, it's, it's, I think, something like the, the power of inauthenticity. He's the one who I got the idea of inauthenticity from and how excellent that is. He's, his main point isn't about being unauthentic. It's actually these, these tips on how to use your hands, your movement, your face really well. I commend it to your listeners. Perfect. Daniel, you are uh, the founder of the Center for Public Speaking. You have coaches all over the world. You have webinars that you do, which I think I've been to everyone. 
um, and they're fantastic. So what do you want our audience to know about the Center for Public Speaking? Yeah, we want to help people make a beautiful difference in the world. And so if you are someone who is using your voice on the issue of abortion or perhaps on a variety of other really significant issues, um, it would be our immense privilege to come alongside you and help. And so um, we have a variety of ways that we can uh, strengthen your communication. Uh, some of them are, are paid um, gigs, such as one-on-one -on -one coaching, or we do these group courses that are of, I honestly think, immense value. But we also want to be able to provide help to people who can't afford anything and um, reach as wide an audience as possible to make as much of a difference as possible. So we have these webinars about once a month, and we bring in some people who are using their voice to make a, a beautiful difference in um, a variety of ways. And so the upcoming webinar, the next one will be March 28th, and it features global apologists, detective uh, Jay Warner Wallace and Professor Sean McDowell. And they are going to be talking about the element of time management when it comes to public speaking. I, this is going to happen because I was on the phone with Professor Sean McDowell just saying, mentor me, Sean. Like, how do I prepare for my upcoming speeches while I also have the Center for Public Speaking to do? And then I have emails and we just had a new baby. And he, I am so impressed with, is such a faithful dad. He's so present for his kids and he's publishing books, changing the world, doing amazing stuff. And so as he was giving me answers, he said, yeah, this sounds like a webinar. Let's do a webinar together. And I was like, hey, who is your favorite person on the same question? He said, Jay Warner Wallace. I learned from him on this. He's my mentor on this. So it's going to be those two um, world-changing guys, March 28th. I'd love for people to be there. And it's entirely free. Beautiful. I love it. I, uh, I'm always impressed by the level of guests that you get on. Justin Brierley was on last time, who I love from the Unbelievable podcast. Um, well, we have Rachel who's one of my heroes. Uh, and the other thing I should say, yeah, too, yeah. even if you if you register for the webinar, you can attend live or get the recording. So some of your listeners are going to go to log in. Like, oh, I'm busy at that time. Still sign up. And we give away as many books as we can because uh, this isn't a green screen. Actually, I love, I've read these books and we love giving away books. So just register. You'll be entered to win even if you can't attend live. Perfect. Daniel, thank you so much for taking the time. Guys, thanks so much for the difference you're making through your podcast. That was Daniel Gilman, the founder of the Center for Public Speaking. Cam, I love asking you at the end of every program, what sort of thoughts and reflections you have? Because I learn from your reflections as much as I learn from our guests. So <laughs> I'm sure you have some now. What are some of the final thoughts or takeaways that you might have from our conversation with Daniel? I, I so thoroughly appreciate Daniel's time with us. I think that he has a very, very good angle. Something that we actually talked about after the recording, where we're recording this conclusion after we finish the recording with Daniel, um, is just how important it is to not have the quote-unquote rules of public speaking. That there are a lot of principles, a lot of guidelines. Um, if if we have any um, Pirates of the Caribbean fans out there, they're, they're more like guidelines than rules. Um, that, that can help you thrive, but it depends on your personality. It depends on the nature of the topic and the, and the audience that you're engaging with. I really liked how Daniel had a a focus on kind of principles and not rules, not things that you have to pound your fist three times in the first five minutes and you have to um, do this and picture your audience naked and all those terrible things that you read about online of, of ways to be more confident. Um, I think he took a very, very uh, measured approach and I cannot recommend highly enough um, the work that he is doing there. I know that he has worked with many people within um, Peter, yours and my um, sphere. And he has done phenomenal work with them, helping them grow, not only in, um, I was going to say confidence, but but he had, he had talked about how it's the conviction that comes through and how to best demonstrate that conviction 
to your audience, how to engage people effectively. Um, tremendous amount of appreciation for him joining the program. And and yeah, definitely want to recommend anyone who wants to take their public speaking to the next level, getting in touch with him, checking out the free webinars, checking out the, I, I think he said he does one free consultation um, meeting with people. And then whether it's a group, whether it's one-on-one, he would love to work with you in a personalized manner going forward. Um, yeah, love the stuff that he shared today. Perfect. And thank you so much for everyone for tuning in. If you haven't already liked the video, please do so. Um, Subscribe, share this with your friends and your family members. If you want to find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, you can do so there by searching the Pro-Life Guys podcast. You can also find us on our website, prolifeguys.com, where we have a back catalog of all of the episodes that we have done. You can also reach out to us there with any questions or concerns or thoughts or poems or stories or requests, you name it. The, 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 I mean, it's up to you, really. The, the freedom is yours to reach out to us with whatever it is that you would like to do so with. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you tune in again next time. Mm-hmm.